The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Land is simply essential to the way in which we as a society, whichever country we live in, go about uh, conducting our lives. Uh, it's essential to uh, where we work, where we, uh, where we live, obviously, in terms of housing, uh, where we play, uh, where we protest. Welcome to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney, and podcasting on Apple Podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers, and today we're talking to Professor Brett Christophers from Uppsala University about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. And this is a story we just couldn't squeeze into a single episode. So alas, we've given the next two episodes of City Road over to exploring the ideas in this new book. And it's a fascinating piece of research. In this episode, we'll talk about the old enclosure acts of the last few centuries and what Brett calls the new enclosure or the privatisation of public land in the UK today. In the next episode, Brett draws some connections between the privatisation of public land and addressing the housing affordability problem in the UK. And he maps out who the winners and losers are under this new enclosure. And here's a hot tip. If you're looking to buy a house, you're not a winner. I'll hand over now to City Road host Dr Sophie Webber, who's talking to Brett Christophers about his new book. Okay, so we're going to talk about your book. Yes. So your book is called The New Enclosures. Yep. Or the New Enclosure. Yep. What is the old enclosure? So the old enclosure, or the I guess the original enclosure, was it was again was not one episode. It was a drawn out process occurring in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, beginning in the you know the fourteenth fifteenth century, but really concentrated in the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century. And this, this, is, this process of enclosure is, is what Karl Marx referred to in, in Capital as the primitive accumulation. And what he meant by that was not primitive in, any, in, in the sense that we typically think about it. What he meant was that this was the process that enabled all subsequent capitalist accumulation possible. And the reason it did that was that what the enclosures entailed was the alienation of large proportions of the UK population from the land that sustained them. So land in 18th, 17th, 18th century Britain, uh, it was typically privately owned. So the public actually at that time was not a significant landowner at all in the public sector, sorry, um, because there really was no significant public sector. So it was typically privately owned, but there were so-called common rights to that land that gave uh, the peasantry the right to uh, use that land to sustain themselves, whether through uh, through farming or through foraging or whatever or whatever or grazing of, of, of cattle or sheep or whatever it might have been. And enclosure was the alienation of those people through the termination of those common rights to the land. And what Marx showed, um, and others have discussed subsequently at much much greater length, was that this wholesale process of enclosure which basically was about enclosing the common fields fencing them off so that people 
couldn't access them through the termination of these legal common rights. Obviously, what it did was it left um, massive parts of the population, the peasantry in this in this situation where they had to find other ways of sustaining themselves. And what that led to was this mass migration to the new growing industrial cities where uh, the pe- the ex-peasantry um, became wage labourers, selling their labour to the emergent capitalist class. So the enclosure was a long drawn out process of precisely that, of enclosure of land to which there had previously been common rights. And it led to, as I've indicated, the massive social, social and economic transformation of the lives of, of, million, of millions of people. Initially, those, the process of enclosure was through private agreement. But in the latter part of the period, so from the, the second half of the 18th century onwards, it, it was through acts of parliament. So there were the par- parliamentary acts of enclosure. And so really, at heart, enclosure in its original form was this process of, of social and spatial enclosure of and for the public of their of their ability to to do uh, certain things and to sustain themselves in a certain way and so the reason i i use the term enclosure in, in the new book is not so much about the what's going on in terms of the legal process that's involved here because it's actually different because the original enclosure was not really privatization because the land was privately owned anyway lots of people get this wrong they talk about enclosure as privatisation. It wasn't privatisation. It was the enclosure of common rights uh, to land that was typically privately owned. But rather, I use the term, uh, in, a, in I guess, in a more metaphorical way, which is to say that uh, is that what we're actually seeing, not necessarily on the, on the same scale, but is, is a comparable process whereby, the, I guess, the rights to access and use wide swathes of land are again being enclosed. And literally privatized. So, if you think, for example, of you know the public space of a city that the public possibly has has grown accustomed to to spending time in and doing whatever they want to do in within reason, you know, often that public space was was publicly owned and it's now been privatized. And what we're seeing is you know security guards checking on what's going on in those areas and making sure that nothing is nothing is done that might affect the ability of the commercial owners of that site. For example, if it's a, if it's adjacent to a shopping centre or something, to conduct its, its profit, its profitable business, and so really, uh, that's the the metaphorical sense I'm trying to get at here, is that the you know the ability of the populace at large to use the land in a way that is productive for the population at large, rather than productive for a minority class of of capitalists, has been socially and spatially enclosed during the recent period. So that's that's what I'm getting at there. The original enclosures were also a labour regime. Is the new enclosure a labour regime? That's a good question. I don't think it is. No, I mean, I think what's going on here is is not primarily related to late to questions of labour. You know, the, the classical economists like to talk about the three different factors of production, land, labour and capital. And this is about land and capital. But but clearly, I think it has certainly has implications for the labouring class, if you want if you want to use that label. Um, I think that's that's certainly true. Your book is focused on the privatization of land in the UK. Yep. What do you mean by privatization of land? Is that different from the privatization of a water utility or a telecommunications provider? Why does the privatization of land matter? So the first question, it does differ 
from the privatization of an enterprise, which is the word I would use for the other type of privatization you were talking about. So the UK uh, under Margaret Thatcher in the 80s really pioneered the privatization of enterprises like the utilities providers, um, electricity, uh, gas, water supply, telecommunications, so on and so forth. And all of those were enterprises that supplied services typically to the public. And the argument that Thatcher and the Tories made was that those operations were better off in the private sector. They would be more efficient. There was no need for the state to own those. Uh, And the consumer, the theory went, would get a better deal if they were owned by the private sector. The privatization of land is different because what is being sold to the private sector is not a functioning enterprise delivering goods or services but literally the transfer of ownership of an asset, which is the which is the land itself. The only, I guess, wrinkle to that that I would point out would be that actually a lot of the land that has been privatised in the UK was privatised with those enterprises. So a lot of those functioning enterprises that Thatcher privatised and actually subsequent uh, UK governments have continued to privatise under Labour as much as under, under New Labour as much as under the Tories were themselves major landowners. So the water utilities in particular were major landholders. So when those enterprises were privatised, their land holdings were privatised along with them. And in the book, I, I try to map out the extent of this process and basically how much land has been transferred from the public to the private sector. And roughly about 20% or about a fifth of the land that has been privatised was privatised with those enterprise privatisations. Does that answer the question about yep. what it is? Yep. Okay. In terms of why it matters, I think it matters for a lot of a lot of reasons and a significant part of the book is given over to trying to explain that. I guess the most simplistic and short answer would be to say that land is simply essential to the way in which we as a society, whichever country we live in, go about uh, conducting our lives. Uh, it's essential to... Uh, where we work, where we uh, where we live, obviously, in terms of housing, uh, where we play, uh, where we protest, plays a fundamental part in all different aspects of our lives. And it makes a significant difference to our potential as citizens and as a society and as, em- as employees, as residents, uh, whether that land is owned by the public or private sector. Not necessarily because the possibilities are entirely different, but the public and private sector historically have had different sets of priorities when managing their assets, including land assets. And what I try to show in the book is that we see this with the privatisation that has occurred in the UK, insofar as the possibilities for people to work and to, uh, to live and play and protest in different ways have increasingly been closed down through the privatisation of land. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I refer to it as a process of enclosure. So in your book, you, you basically lay out which land counts for being privatised and, and which doesn't. But essentially, we're looking at a process or you're defining privatisation as the sale of land which is owned, not just managed, but owned by the state. Yes. And it is then sold to various different kinds of private actors. Yes. Is that right? Yep. And when you uh, put it like that, that opens up obviously a series of important questions, which is that insofar as the fact that, first of all, the state is not a single actor. So when we talk about public land, we're talking about any land that is owned by a public sector body. And so that can be any any department of central government. In the UK context, it can be the Ministry of Defence, it can be the Ministry of Health, it can be the Ministry of Environment, 
So it can be any central government body. It can be any type of public corporation. But more importantly, it can also be one of the many institutions of local government. And so historically, a lot of the land that was owned by the state within the UK uh, was owned by local government as well as by central government. You have literally hundreds of different public bodies in the UK, probably in the region of close to a thousand in total. And many, if not all of those were, and to, in many cases still are, uh, landowners in different places. Um, so you, when you're talking about the privatisation of land, and I think this is one of the key things I try and get across in the book, is you're not talking about a single privatisation like you are with, say, the sale of a national telecommunications provider or a national electricity provider. You're talking about ten, literally tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of individual transactions, of individual privatisations, of plots of land ranging from you know, as little as half an acre to plots of land that have been sold that are substantially larger than that. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why so little is known about this process is precisely because it's been tens, if not hundreds of thousands of individual transactions. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do in the book really is, is, is piece together the story and think about, well, what does this add up to collectively? So I think lots of people know that there have been these individual sales, but as far as I know, until now, no one's really thought, well, actually, what does this all add up to, both in, in kind of quantitative terms, um, but also in, in qualitative terms, in terms of what this means for the UK in terms of society and economy. I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney, and on the web at cityroadpod.org. We're talking to Professor Brett Christophers from Uppsala University about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. Brett's been talking about the old enclosure acts and how the new enclosure of land today is different to other forms of privatisation. In the next part of the discussion, Brett talks about the geography of land privatisation in the UK and Sophie asks who are the winners and the losers of the new enclosure. So that's my next question yep. about what the geographies of that privatisation are in the UK. What is its magnitude? Where is it concentrated? Yep. Are there different drivers in different places? Yep. So again, this is a very difficult question to answer because the way in which I've gone about trying to figure out how much land has been sold has not been to try to look at all those individual transactions that I that I mentioned and figure out you know how much land has been sold in each case and therefore how much it adds up to primarily because it would literally be impossible to do that. And the reason for that is that um, not only would the state be, in many cases, unwilling to give the information uh, that would be required, but more importantly, the state did not keep records of many of the transactions that occurred. So it's quite clear that until very, very recently, the process of, of record keeping in relation to land privatisation was, in many cases, lamentable. And the state kept no records of uh, what had been sold, uh, how much for, and so on and so forth. So you simply could not do that. So what I did instead was was looked at the question of how much land the state owned collectively in the period immediately prior to when this process of privatisation began. And then I looked at the question of how much land the state owns today. And 
effectively triangulated between those two. And so at the end of the 1970s, when, when Margaret Thatcher came to power, which was when this process really began in earnest, there were some, some land sales before that, but the state was also acquiring land in significant quantities still. So the process of net sale of land really began with, with Thatcher coming to power, and it's still going on today. So in the late 1970s, some fantastic work was done by a very famous geographer, Doreen Massey, who died uh, quite recently with some colleagues. And they did this uh, process of figuring out how much land the state owned then. And they came up with a figure of roughly 20% of Britain, which amounts to about 4 million hectares of land. Today, it looks like the state owns roughly about half of that, a little bit over 2 million hectares. So about 2 million hectares have been sold. Uh, which represents about 10% of the land area of Britain. Where has that been sold? Again, I think it's literally impossible to figure out an exact geography of it. But what we can do is figure out who the main sellers of land have been institutionally, if that makes sense. Because when Massey did her work, uh, she gave a pretty good indication of where within the public sector land ownership was concentrated. And again, the work that been done to figure out how much the state owns today has done similarly. So we know roughly how much land was owned by the different major public sector bodies then and now. And so what it looks like, as I said earlier, about uh, 400,000 hectares, so about, tw- about 20% of that which has been sold disappeared with the enterprise privatizations. So water, electricity, railways, coal and so on. And... Uh, roughly equivalent proportions that I mean the the details are in the book but we can say for for the sake of argument that roughly equivalent proportions of the rest have come from local government and central government so from from within central government for example uh, the National Health Service has been a major seller of land Um, other ones include the Ministry of Defence and then also the, the Forestry Commission so actually the single largest landowner public or private in the UK today and in the late 1970s was the Forestry Commission. Uh, so actually, it's it has sold a lot of land. Uh, about 225,000 hectares have been sold. But even so, it remains the single largest landowner today in the UK. And then, as I said, the lo- local authority estate has also seen substantial sales. And, th- and obviously, that's throughout Britain. But getting a handle on where exactly that's happened is very difficult. What we do know is that that process of sale has occurred both in urban areas of the UK and in rural areas. So in terms of local authority uh, sales, the rural sales have come largely out of the farming estate. So local authorities historically have been uh, major owners of farmland, which they let to tenants on a, on, a, on a tenancy basis. And lots of that land has been sold. And then within urban areas, a significant amount of the land that has been sold has been housing land. Uh, and we maybe we'll talk about this later, but a you know a significant part of the process of land privatization has been bound up with the privatization of housing and housing land so who are the winners and losers from privatization well again as with all these questions unfortunately there's no straightforward answer and there's no straightforward answer here because as i said earlier the record keeping has been both not good but also shrouded in secrecy but it's fairly clear that the biggest buyers of uh, the land that has been privatized have been have been developers have been house builder slash developers of which you know many of the the biggest players in the uk like the likes of berkeley group uh, persimmon taylor wimpy and so on are some of the biggest companies in the in the uk today 
I, th- I would add a, as a caveat to that, I think that in certain places, in particular London, we've also seen uh, financial institutions being major buyers as well. But across the country at large, it's fairly clear that developers have been uh, the biggest buyers. And I think it's also fairly clear that it's been an incredibly profitable process for them. And I think what, you know one of the reasons for that is that, and I, and I talk about this quite extensively in the book, you know, land uh, values, uh, like the house prices that they underpin, have increased at an extraordinarily fast rate, albeit in a volatile way in recent decades. And so where developers bought land uh, 30, 25, 20, 10, even five years ago, they are now sitting on assets that they acquired relatively cheaply from the state and have benefited accordingly. Uh, which is pretty straightforward. But there's another reason as well, which is that the government has rules or guidelines at least about the uh, value at which land should be sold by the state, by public sector bodies to the private sector. Basically say that the the state should uh, secure market value from that sale. But very, very often, uh, market value has not been secured from that sale. And there's, there's all sorts of different reasons for that. Uh, ranging from plain bad management to the fact that um, there's been a a consistent, what I would call, I guess, a consistent cosseting of of the private sector where developers will say, well, you know, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to to make a profit from buying this land and building housing on it in these difficult market conditions that we're seeing at the moment. And the state has, in many cases, almost bent over backwards to accommodate the private sector and has de-risked the sites that it has sold to the private sector by selling them at below market value. So the private sector really has made out extremely uh, well from this process. So that's the end of part one of our discussion with Brett Christophers about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. You can find the next part of our discussion at City Road Podcast or on our website at cityroadpod.org. At the end of this episode, he suggested that the biggest buyers of privatised land in the UK have been property developers. In the next episode, we pick up on this discussion by talking about the connections between the privatisation of public land and addressing the housing affordability problem in the UK. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.